Hey, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you folks. We are broadcasting today, as we always do, from Des Moines, Iowa, or as I prefer to call it, the Cultural and Culinary Crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to all of our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community-focused, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, a quick shout-out to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. Later in the program, we'll be talking about uh, a state-based solution to the need for universal health care. We'll also cover a whole bunch of climate stories, and Kathy Burns will join me for our February Garden Q&A. But first, it's my, uh, my, my privilege to ent- uh, welcome to the program uh, Senator Claire Salsi. She represents uh, parts of Des Moines, West Des Moines. I can't remember where else. Just West Des Moines? West Des Moines, Clive, and Windsor Heights. West Des Moines, Clive. In other words, the western suburbs of Des Moines at the Iowa State House, which is a barrel of uh, fun right now for a Democrat, right? Oh, boy. Um, you know, Democrats are needed more than ever. That's what I would say. Because we're calling out all the chicanery. Yeah. And I know one, one, one piece of chicanery we want to talk about is the uh, nursing home crisis. Uh, it is real. I mean, it's so real that even... Republicans who have been big recipients of campaign money from nursing home lobbyists and executives, uh, even they are recognizing that, yeah, we got to do something about this problem. Absolutely. Um, It's been frustrating, very frustrating, to try to get some answers out of the Republican caucus. Um, So in December, we decided to call for an oversight committee meeting um, and basically put them on the spot and say, if this doesn't change, um, something's going to happen, and something already has happened, and that is a lot of older people have died. And if that wasn't bad enough, um, you know, we found out it's really tied to campaign donations um, and, you know, taking a I'm not looking, you're not seeing attitude about this whole thing. And, um, the money that they've received seems to silence them when mm-hmm. it comes to pointing out the things that are going wrong with the industry. So, so, and what exactly is going wrong with the industry? Well, let's see. For starters, um, many people think the biggest crisis in Iowa is that nursing homes are closing. What is actually the biggest crisis is that nursing homes don't have enough workers so they don't have enough CNAs, they don't have enough CNAs, nurses, certified, uh, nurse certified assistants. nurses assistants. Right. Those are the people that actually do all the work in a nursing home, changing the sheets, uh, moving people, taking people to the restroom, taking people to the shower, uh, bringing people their food and water every day. Those are the actual workers in the nursing home that do all the work. And why, why, aren't, there, why aren't the nursing homes hiring more people? Well, they're trying <clears throat> to hire more people according to them, But according to facts, they're simply not paying enough people, paying people enough, excuse me, to work in these nursing homes. And that has been shown by the level of turnover that they have Hmm. and also just, you know, the level of people applying for these positions. Uh, During the pandemic, it got worse because people, um, you know, just it was not safe enough to work there for the money that they were paying. So people just stopped applying there. And it's gotten worse and worse uh, as far as numbers of turnover. In fact, last year, I was told by a nursing home industry person 
that uh, the turnover for CNAs, certified nurses assistants, is 100%. Oh, my god! So they're not keeping anybody in these <clears throat> positions. So it's gotten worse, but I'll tell you, it was bad back when I was a legislator in the 90s. And I used to make, um, I would walk to the Capitol. It was only about two miles. On the way home, I would sometimes stop at a nursing home or two in my district. A surprise visit, wouldn't announce it. Mm-hmm. And they, that, they hated that. And then I would just say, okay, I'm ready for a tour. And they were, like, shocked. And I remember going onto a, uh, I can't remember which floor it was, of a, of a home here on University Ave once. And the stench of, of, of urine-soaked sheets in the hallway, um, other concerns that were raised. I mean, it was clearly, a, this is a privately owned company in Texas, owning homes here in Iowa. And it was clear that they weren't doing an adequate job. Yep. And it's only gotten worse, you say. It's still going on. In fact... Another thing that's been added since then, it's not only out-of-state ownership, it's private equity ownership, Mm. which is even worse. Why is that? Because um, private equity firms, if you've ever heard of Bain Capital or anything like that, Mm -hmm. they exist to buy a company and basically shell it out for all it's worth and empty it of employees, empty it. It of whatever business that they're doing, they're trying to make more money. So if a private equity firm buys a nursing home or a nursing home chain in the case of Iowa, um, basically they get rid of employees, they want to make money off of it, they bill Medicare and Medicaid for whatever they can get out of it, but they're not putting the money back into the business. So why is that even legal? Well, it's because we have very little oversight here in Iowa. Um, and that's it's probably going on in other states as well. I can only speak to Iowa today, but um, what I'm telling you is the light's on in nobody's home when it comes to regulation. Hmm. Uh, a guy named um, Larry Johnson is the head of a department called DIAL, D-I-A-L. It used to be called D-I-A. That was Department of Inspections and Appeals. And now, now, what's the now, now it's licensing. Licensing, okay. So um, he is presiding over a department right now for nursing home inspections that has at least half, half of the number of inspectors that they need. So compared to other states and compared to you know, previous numbers here in <clears throat> Iowa, we have half of the nursing home <clears throat> inspectors that we need. And Republicans are refusing to allow any increase in inspections. Oh, well, Republicans really are just ignoring the problem. They're really not doing anything. Uh, they are, um, but they're not, they're also not letting us having, have a government oversight committee meeting right. so that we can call in the experts, ask them questions, and try to figure out why we're can't, having so many, you know. Can't you just do that on your own without approval no. from the Republicans? No? Nope. Because the Republicans are in charge. Well, we could, and we may. But what I'm saying is an official government oversight meeting needs to have a Republican chair call the meeting, and that's where all the subpoena power comes into play. But you can still do it. We we can do it, and we are going to do it. But it doesn't have as much power. Sure, but you you, you would get some some media interest and public interest. And we've gotten lots of media interest since we had our press conference in December. But media interest doesn't fix the problem. Right. Well, and you've got, uh, how do you respond to uh, one of your colleagues, a Republican, uh, Senator Amy uh, Sinclair, uh, recently quoted as saying, the Senate has increased funding for nursing home care by nearly $75 million, increased incentives for high-quality care, 
to over 101 million and pass critical tort reforms. She seems to say we're addressing the problem. How no, do you respond? We're not, we're not addressing the problem. And they're using the same tactic there that they use for public school funding. Basically, yes, public school funding has increased millions over time, but when you add in inflation, Sure, it means right. nothing because it hasn't kept up with inflation. And the money they do give to the nursing home industry is without strings. Mm. So they give it to the nursing home owners. Like I mentioned, many of them are out-of-state private equity firms. They have no accountability for any of this. So they give them the money, and there's no strings attached, and they don't report back to us how they're using the money and Key, key here is they're not giving raises. Uh, That's right, what they right. need to do. And I would think there would be a huge constituency to push for true reforms. I mean, how many, how many residents are there in Iowa nursing homes? Um, I actually don't know that exact number right now. I wish I would have gotten that before no, this interview. Okay. But I can find out for you and let you know, Ed. But um, it's a lot. It's and a lot. there's family members for each one, of those, each one of those people in a nursing home. There's got to be a bunch of family members that Correct. don't appreciate the lack of care. Right. They don't. And um, it seems like Republicans don't really want to talk about this issue in real terms. And that is exactly what you brought up. There are real people in these places. There are real family members that are paying thousands and thousands of dollars. Every month. For these folks, yeah. you know, sometimes $10,000 a month mm, well. for these folks to stay in these places. And there's no accountability. So over the summer, I was reading some of Clark Kaufman's excellent reporting on the nursing home crisis. And, you know, I started really just asking out loud, who is going to fix this crisis? Who cares about this crisis? So um, that's why I decided over the interim to um, ask Pam Yoakum, our Democratic leader in the Senate, if she wanted to, um, you know, basically join me in calling for reform and calling for oversight. And that's when we had the press conference in um, December asking for oversight. Now, what about uh, the, the, something called a granny cam? which um, I guess there would be grandpa cams as well. Mm -hmm. uh, these are cameras that would be stationed in rooms at the resident's mm -hmm. request to make sure that care is being appropriately delivered. And the nursing home industry has vehemently opposed these in the past. But this year, these, this legislation seems to be making some progress. What's changed? I'm not sure what has changed in that regard, but they're getting pressure, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I introduced a bill uh, like that. Charlie McConkey and I um, introduced it two sessions ago, and it didn't get any traction whatsoever. Right. I, I remember that, and now yeah. it is. I mean, didn't it pass out of a committee 20 to 1? Yes. And, you know, it makes sense to have a camera in a room that is placed by a um, family member to keep an eye on what is happening to their grandmother while she's in the nursing home. Um, but... That would mean accountability. That would mean somebody is in there 24-7 looking at and seeing what's happening. Um, we've had reports of older folks in nursing homes that have a food tray delivered to them at noon for lunch, and then it sits there all day because no one comes in and feeds oh. them because they're not able to feed themselves. Oh. So what and good is documented. it? documented. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, what good is it if food is delivered, or water is right next to your bed table, but you can't get it yourself. So, so really, the, the problem seems to me is it, it's money. 
It's a, the, the nursing home lobby has become very effective at at funding Republican mm-hmm. campaigns. And now, and I, and to be honest, you know there are there are cases where you can say, well, the Democratic Party isn't doing its job on this particular issue because of money coming into key Democratic campaigns. But um, in the case of uh, nursing home, the nursing home industry, it seems to be very lopsided, very skewed simply to Republican lawmakers. I mean, and the amounts of money, what, Kim Reynolds got, what, $30,000? Right. And it's over time, it's been millions <clears throat> to the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And um, they just don't seem to like talking about accountability at all. So um, reading Clark's articles and coupled with noticing that Republicans didn't like to talk about this issue, um, and me being the ranking member of the Oversight Committee in the Senate, um, you know, that's really the only power I hold over this issue, um, and that is bringing it up Mm -hmm. and making it relevant and letting people understand what's really going on. And as you mentioned, using the media to get the word out about what's really happening. Yeah. So that's what I decided to do. And surely there have got to be Republican lawmakers who've got a parent or a, a loved one in a nursing home that have that personal connection that would transcend any amount of money they're going to get from a lobbyist. Yes, I'm sure there are. And, but here's the problem. It seems like there's no urgency. There's no, um, you know, what do we do about this disaster kind of attitude at all among the Republicans. They just seem to give out awards every year to the uh, Republicans. You know, they have their ceremonies. The, and, the nursing home industry gives yes, out these awards. They yeah. give out they give out awards, and, you know, apparently it comes with money or something. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm probably never going to get one of those, Ed. So I, I'll just have to, like, rely Congratulations on... Congratulations on not getting an award. Hey, I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. It's a badge of honor for me. So, I mean, I, I really appreciate your, your, uh, your, your staunch position on this and the fact that Democrats have been leading the way to the for the, for the right kind of changes we need to see. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I would love to see that translate into, you know, voters recognizing, hey, this, um, these folks are actually on our side. But maybe is part of the problem that, that there's kind of a, a lack of similar, of, of comparable, you know, bravery on other issues? And um, You know, I think there are, po- there are pockets of bravery everywhere. If you and if you pay attention and look to see where they are, you will have no problem finding them. So, um, my pocket of bravery was on the nursing home industry. Mm-hmm. I have no power other than being the ranking member of the oversight which is committee, yeah. right? Which is maybe a little, yeah. but I'm using that power to call them to account. And I don't think. Anything I say, I'm I'm not stupid. I know that they don't care what I have to say, and I know that they don't think I have any power, and that's fine. But I am going to use my voice over and over to make sure that the public knows what's going on and the Republicans know that somebody is paying attention to their inaction. And, uh, yeah, maybe that will translate into some real change eventually. Yeah, I but, hope so. But, you know, one concern I have, is too, is that uh, – I saw this happen before uh, when Democrats gained control of the House and Senate and governor's office in 2007. You know, the Farm Bureau had been funding Republicans mostly because they wanted to maintain this uh, horrible situation with confined animal feeding uh, lots. Which is still happening. When people got sick of that and, and elected Democrats to try to make a change, Farm Bureau started giving money to Democrats and nothing got done for four mm-hmm. years. So anyway, I really hope that uh, that you all stay strong on this and that hopefully other people will come around and something will get done. Maybe the Granny Cams is a good starting place. 
Um, I don't know about the granny cams. I think it goes much deeper than that. I would love to tell you about my package that I have here. Sure. It's four bills. So the first bill <clears throat> is regarding oversight, which is really the biggest problem overall. There's nobody in the state whatsoever that is um, really overseeing this. We have several departments that have their you know, hands in elder care, mm -hmm. but no one really overseeing it, especially not DIAL, uh, the Department of Inspections, Appeal, Appeals, and Licensing. So the oversight bill would have long-term care facility uh, Long-term care facility safety council established. As you know, Governor Reynolds is getting rid of boards and commissions, so I'm not mm -hmm. holding my breath on this. Right. But we truly believe there needs to be oversight at a level where somebody is in charge of this. So this oversight facility safety council would be established to make sure someone is paying attention to this full time. Then, um, in addition to that, there would be an alternatives to institutional care bill. So, as you know, a nursing facility, big nursing facility in whatever town, is not the only way that people take care of their elders sure. or elders take care of themselves. Um, there are many alternatives to institutional care out there, home care being one of them. Um, we also found a return to community pilot program that's been going for six years in Iowa. I'm familiar with that because I offered that language back yes. in 1994, I think. Right. And, and so, it, was, it was passed unanimously right. on a voice vote and then right. vetoed by the governor. Okay. Because of a campaign contribution. I get yeah. it. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. But now there is a program that's going. It's been going for six years as a pilot program mm -hmm. and has never been studied. In other words, the pilot program has never been stopped and analyzed to see if it's working. Guess what? We found out that it's working. Surprise, <laughs> so surprise. this is wonderful program <laughs> yeah, yeah. that only costs, I think, um, we're proposing $7 million for this program moving forward. Which but, sounds like a lot of money to the average person, but in terms of a state budget, oh, it's not that much. As, as far as the long-term care budget for nursing facilities, it's $800 million. Right. So mm -hmm. think about that. Yeah. $7 million for versus home 800. care versus $800 million going down the tubes. But it's less money for the nursing home industry. And right. The, the, and, the, and the hedge funds and, exactly. and capital firms that right. are investing in them don't like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and my colleague, Senator Janice Weiner, has been working on this part of the plan. And we do have a bill for alternatives to an institutional care, um, including, including uh, excuse me, returning that uh, return to community pilot program to a bigger program and expanding it statewide. Mm. So that's what we plan on doing. Yeah. Okay. I have another one. Um, the support for the direct, direct care force is very important to me um, and the industry because the industry cannot run without direct care providers that work in nursing homes and other such facilities. So we are proposing a huge raise for those people, $20 an hour uh, starting rate wage for um, nursing facilities and corresponding increases in Medicaid reimbursement for direct care providers. So mm. that's key. Yeah. We've got to pay for it. Yeah. If we give them a raise, we have to pay for it. And we can't depend on the nursing industry to police itself. Right. So it would have some oversight ability in there as well. Well, Claire, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your work. appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a busy schedule you this bet. time of the year. I do. 
Folks, we've been talking to uh, State Senator Claire Salsi about the uh, nursing home industry crisis here in Iowa, which is not, uh, Iowa is, we, we may be, be number one in terms of being the worst, but I think it's a problem in plenty of other states. So, yeah, pay it attention. Sure Thank you. Hey, and uh, we'll be back in a minute after a short break. Uh, Pat LaMarche is going to join us. We're going to be talking about fixing health care at the state level versus waiting for the federal government to get around to, you know, doing it the way most other countries in the world do it. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Hey folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to all of our sponsors and partners, including Catholic Peace Ministry. Catholic Peace Ministry is an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. The group focuses on nuclear disarmament, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open from Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Well, I'm happy to welcome to the program Pat LaMarche. Uh, she ran for governor of Maine in 1998 and 2006 on the Green Party ticket. I believe she received 7% the first time and nearly 10% the next time around. She was also the 2004 Green Party ticket nominee for vice president, also a longtime freelance journalist and broadcaster, now living in Pennsylvania. Pat, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. And do I also understand correctly that you've got a longtime association with uh, author Stephen King? Yeah, well, I worked for him for a few years. Um, obviously, I reported on him forever as a journalist, but... Uh, in 2011 mm. through 2012, I was his morning show. Stephen King owns a bunch of radio stations. Okay. And, and he had a political talk program in the mornings, and I was the morning show host. And he's less scary in person than he is in print? I'm not saying that. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> Actually, he's a doll. He's okay, a good. phenomenal human being. Well, we, we have our own Steve King here, and perhaps you're aware of a, a, a former oh, U.S. Yes. congressman. Yeah, yes, um, yeah I, I don't think he likes it when that one shows up on a Google search. <laughs> probably vice, probably <laughs> vice versa as well, right? Yeah, anyway, probably. Yeah. So, yeah, no. Uh, anyway, so uh, we wanted to talk about, uh, maybe, maybe we'll talk a little bit about politics as well, but let's focus on health care because you've done a lot of work on 
on this issue. And um, I mean, it continues to be an issue that, you know, a majority of candidates running for office, either you know, a state legislative or Congress, bring up. And it seems like an issue, despite all kinds of tweaks and reforms, doesn't seem to get better to the point where people are satisfied with it. So tell us your thoughts on what we need to do to address the health care problem in our country. Well, health care in the United States is a problem. It's not a problem anywhere else in the industrial na- in nations of the world. And in some of the second world, it's still not a problem. Uh, I mean, Japan, Canada, France, UK, you name the country, uh, they live longer and pay less. So the only place it's a it's a problem is where it's treated as a commodity and a, a, a active part of the capitalist culture. And we're, capitalist the, structure. And we're the only country that does that. Oh, yeah. The only the only country that's first of all, we're the wealthiest country in the world. So you'd think we'd be doing the smart one. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if if you live longer and pay less than any any of these other countries, why are we doing it our way? Why are we paying more and dying sooner? Okay, let me let it me just let defies me, logic. Let me throw that question at you. Why are we doing it this way? Um, well, the the historical reason is because at the end of World War II, when most of um, or nearly all of Europe was switching to a system of universal health care, um, there was a hiring freeze, a wage freeze in the United States to curb inflation. And most employers, in order to entice the best um, candidates, would offer health care as a benefit. That makes it become that part made, of, that, became that, part of a, the benefit culture instead of the, and you know, as a form of compensation with your job. But that made sense back then, right? Well, yeah, because you know, only ten years earlier, penicillin wasn't even uh, a thing in Fleming's mind till 1932. You know, and a hundred years earlier, it was leeches and boils and things. I mean. It, it took it was the late 1800s before the X-ray was invented, um, so there wasn't anything about healthcare that even the founding fathers. I mean, the biggest founding father, George Washington, was murdered by his doctors. Right, he was bled to death for having pneumonia. While a bunch of Native Americans were saying, "Hey, we've got these roots we chew on that makes your fever go down," uh, you know, but they were doing it the old way. And it seems like the United States has been stuck in doing it the old stupid way. Ever since. So well, we just carry that forward where well, and, and drug pro- companies make a ton of money. So right. so drugs have to be priced outside the, the the scope of anyone who doesn't have insurance and et cetera, et cetera. Well, and yeah, the fact that the, the current health care system is in the U.S. is stupid is secondary to the fact that there are, <laughs> there are, a, handful, there are a handful of industries yeah. that are making money hand over fist on it. Absolutely. I mean, that was part of the initial part of Obamacare that uh, was interesting to me was um, uh, one of the one of the many, many pages of that bill were the fact that there was a cap on the profit insurance companies could make. So if a company made more than a certain amount of money on, uh, you know, their actuarial probability of you making it, depending on what medicine you got, um, they had to give people back the extra money they had to send checks back and i think in 2012 that did happen uh insurance companies reimbursed people because they'd overcharge them in their premiums and they didn't they made too much money they made more than the 28 percent profit maximum or whatever the number was on, on obamacare what's happened since then with that provision I'm not sure what's happened with that provision. I think the only real tweaking that's gone on with um, with it has been things like whether or not there's a penalty, which, of course, during the Trump administration, the penalty for not having health insurance 
um, was eliminated. Um, it, it seems to me they're always the penalty's always on the wrong side. Yeah, the, you that, know the, the the penalty should be if you can't pass a, a comprehensive health care for all plan, then as senators and representatives, you lose your health insurance. Yeah, like a lot of America, I don't think people. I, I, I mean, most people didn't mind seeing that penalty go away. That seemed unfair. Right, but but so the reason that it did, it, you know, you can get in the, the heavy weeds of healthcare discussions. And I'm going to try not to do that. But the reason they did it, and the thing that shocked people when uh, Justice Roberts voted with the rest of the then called liberals um, to save Obamacare, um, was that it was considered a tax. It's a right. tax for health care. Yes. Everybody has right. to pay it. Right, right. And, uh, and it wasn't considered a premium. If you don't buy into the system, it doesn't work for everybody. And, well, basically, if we had universal health care or Medicare for all or whatever people are putting forward, it would be a, a half the people would have to be taxed, but they would be taxed at so much less than what they're paying in insurance premiums. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you, if you don't get a subsidy... Uh, for your health insurance premium in the United States, you're paying a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand a month. That's insane. And then on top that of that, absolutely you've insane. got a deductible. That's, yeah, could be thousands of that dollars. That is absolutely insane. They're, they're, and again, we pay more per capita, and we have less to show for it than a lot of other nations of the world. We die more. We die sooner. We we don't just not do well. We die. You know, at a, at a faster rate, at a younger age. Um, Starting I mean, with... if, any, if any other anything else were proposed to the American people, here, come do this, and, and yeah, you're going to die, but give it a shot. I mean, people would be in an uproar about that. I'm sure yeah. we'd be bombing someone on behalf of it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe maybe bombing the bombing a drug a drug company or insurance industry. Uh, right? Can you no. imagine? And even just the words that you say right there, you're like, I'm oh my kidding. God, your FBI is going to come after you because yeah. you had the nerve to say that someone's killing American people, and yeah. you want to stick up for the American people. So I mean, it's hard to see a path forward where the federal government will implement the kind of change, the changes that's needed. I mean, the Republican Party is problematic, but there's plenty of Democrats that are bought and paid for by the proponents of maintaining the current system as well. So what do we, I mean, do we see any hope at the state level? Is that is that where we might begin to make some kind of changes? Well, that was the premise of our 2006 um, gubernatorial race. I've been, I've been screaming about healthcare for all since 1998, but um, that's how it happened in Canada. So the European nations all had universal healthcare pretty, pretty quick after World War II, but Canada, like the United States, went on this other system where it was a for-profit industry. Um, and then in the 70s, the early 70s, Saskatchewan, which was the smallest, most rural um, farming agrarian uh, system, which maybe some of you folks in Iowa can identify with, um, they realized that this poor province in Canada could not support the healthcare system. People couldn't take care of themselves. And so universal healthcare went into Saskatchewan first. And within a couple of years, all the businesses in the neighboring provinces were moving into Saskatchewan because the universal health care system was so much more affordable for businesses than trying to pay for insurance premiums. Um, And then within a couple of years, the whole country had it. And last year, the guys, I can't remember his name. It's like McCarthy or McConnell or something. The uh, Canadian who started it in Saskatchewan was named the Canadian of the century. The, the gratitude of a nation wow, for the it's, entire it's, 20th century was to this man who was, started universal health care. I was going to guess it was Dudley Do-Right, but anyway. <laughs> oh, no. 
Okay, that, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, but being, so what you're saying is, Canada started off with the same system that we had. What again? Which again, back in the '40s, after the war, probably made sense. Uh-huh. But then they had the wisdom to to change that. But it started at the provincial level again. For us, the equivalent right. would be a state level initiative. Do we see anything happening? Are there any states that are stepping forward with a similar similar effort that might begin to you know blossom into a, a more nationwide reform? I don't know if you saw. There was a recent study of the fifty the the top states to raise a family. Number one was Massachusetts, and then just because of the universal health care. I'm making air quotes for universal, but Massachusetts Romney Care it was called right. under Governor Romney mm-hmm. um, passed the the initial beginning of no person in Massachusetts could be without health care. Um, Vermont has another really progressive system. There are some states that try to cover everybody. One of the most expensive parts of healthcare delivery, the way we do it on a on a um, municipal level um, of, for the municipalities, is needs assessment. Right, we have to figure out if you deserve it, and that's very expensive. You you have interviews. You got you apply for Medicaid, local Medicare, or Medicaid, and and they bring you in and they interview you, and you have to have proof of your income or lack thereof. And all of that needs assessment is just really costly. And so it drives up the cost of healthcare and it drives up the cost of the delivery Mm, of healthcare. Um, So what some of these states have done is because needs assessment is no longer as everybody's going to, they're going to make sure everybody has healthcare and that's, that has eliminated a large portion of that. And do you see, Um, I'm sorry. Do you see a path forward where what's happening or has happened in Vermont, Massachusetts, and beginning to happen, happen elsewhere, elsewhere. Is there a path from those kinds of incubator efforts at the state level to where the federal government might eventually have to embrace universal care? Well, well the malarkey, the malarkey story, <laughs> and there ought to be another word for it, but I just call it malarkey. Oh, that's a great Irish word. That, Go for it. <laughs> are the ERISA laws. So ERISA is a fancy anagram made out of other words. Um, and that says that... Um, you can't um, you can't deny access for insurance companies and retirement programs from one state to another. Hmm. So if if I own a store that's going to expand uh, out of Pennsylvania and into Iowa, you can't deny me the ability to access the stuff I need mm-hmm. to run my business. Okay. Um, yeah. And so those ERISA laws are what they're the what. Uh, insurance companies and other people keep throwing in the way of um, of court procedures to make sure that something like this could spread across the country um, because they're saying no 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 that's that's not that that you can't do that because you can't deny me the ability to buy the kind of insurance I want in that state and my answer to that was buy all the insurance you want you're still going to have to pay the tax for health care for all so, <laughs> so if you want to buy more insurance knock yourself out but mm. the tax the four percent tax that's going to come through depending on your income, um, to pay for health care for all is going to be assessed whether you buy insurance or not. It does, ERISA doesn't apply. But the, but the truth I, is... I mean, I, 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 that's my non-malarkey approach to it, yeah. and I don't see, you know... The truth is, if we did have a universal health care system like other countries have, it would probably mean people would overall pay less, way less than they do now. Oh, my God, so much less. Yeah. So much less. So, so think if you've got, if you're making let's just say you make $5,000 a month just for easy math and 4% of that. Now you're going to pay in for your, for your, your portion of Medicare for all. So that's 200 bucks. 
Well, is that right? Yeah, that's 200 bucks. So otherwise you'd be paying a thousand for a health insurance premium. Hmm. Well, well, I guess that's yeah. a lot cheaper. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> still a lot B, of money, but yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. It, of course <clears throat> it's cheaper. And we have 130 countries that prove it's cheaper. Right. Because they live longer and pay less. Yeah. Well, Pat, I, I got to run to a break. I'd sure love to talk with you about um, some other issues as well. Maybe we'll have you back on sometime, but I got to run to a break and really appreciate your uh, your insights and perspective on, on health care. Uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I love your show, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Pat LaMarche, uh, former uh, Green Party candidate for various offices, governor in Maine, vice president of the U.S., and uh, a longtime advocate for reforming our health care system. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Pat. And when we come back, folks, from a short break, I'll be going through a bunch of, oh, kind of some updates on climate change, including what's happening in California with these crazy rainstorms. And uh, also it's happening here in the upper Midwest with this crazy warm weather. A crazy idea. <laughs> I like to use the word crazy. An idea on how to stop a glacier from melting, which I think is failed. A failed idea. We'll talk about that and a couple other things when we come back from a break on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis, Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so climate change. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on this program because it's a big deal. Well, it's a really big deal right now in California. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the worst drought in what? Thousands of years? And now we're talking about rain that is breaking records. I mean, there, there were, for some reason, they're calling them atmospheric rivers, which uh, amuses me a little bit and puzzles me a bit. I don't know why the name really, really strong storm isn't adequate, but apparently there are atmospheric rivers attacking California, 
one after the other. And uh, the most recent one, we're taping this program on, on Monday, and apparently the rain that's already brought uh, a huge amount of rain is expected to continue into maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, they're expecting three to five more inches in Los Angeles. Um, they're expecting up to 10 inches in the mountain, then up to, and up to four to six feet of snow in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So, so far to date, about 38 million people are under flood alerts. And the, the National Weather Service is calling this potentially historic. So I'm thinking, well, okay, yeah, the flooding is terrible. Um, that people are losing, losing power. They're maybe losing their homes. Um, and one of the biggest risks, of course, is mudslides. Mudslides is something we never have a problem here in the upper Midwest. Now, we have other problems, but mudslides, not one of them. Apparently, they kill about 25 to 50 people a year, and they are the risk of a mudslide is greatly increased, I am told, uh, anytime you get three to four inches in a day, three to, three to four inches of rain in a day. So, you know, the, the uh, silver lining in all this, of course, the silver lining in this atmospheric river is will this... Uh, and the long-standing worst-ever California drought. And, of course, a big part of addressing California's drought is the refilling of Lake Mead, which is, of course, fed by the, uh, primarily by the Colorado River. 98% of what goes into Lake Mead comes from the Colorado River. And so I, th I was thinking, well, gosh, with so much rain happening now and previously and, and even over the last, uh, you know, what, year or so, it's, it's been, the conditions have been better. I was thinking, well, maybe Lake Mead will finally fill up. Maybe, in fact, it'll be too full. Well, according to Newsweek, uh, Lake Mead's water levels have risen slightly after the recent heavy rainfall. But an expert, uh, Jennifer Pitt, warns that there is little chance it will refill. And she says, quote, for more than 20 years, the amount of water stored in Lake Mead has declined as uh, Colorado River water uses have exceeded supplies and climate change is making this worse. So again, it's not just climate change. It's the fact that we are demanding more and more of our resources. And we're seeing that in Iowa. I mean, Iowa is a place blessed with adequate rainfall normally. We're in a drought. We have been for, what, three years now. And uh, we've seen, uh, you know, a little bit of improvement. I think the, uh, what, 30 inches of snow we've had this winter helped. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But the... Um, you know, as we're adding more houses, more businesses, um, and here in Iowa, the, the big, some of the big water cons consumers are ethanol plants and um, data centers. We have a lot of data centers coming in, and they're big users of water for cooling. So, again, yeah, same thing in California and, and the West generally. The states that depend on the Colorado River, they can't, you, you can't continue to see growth and development and, and, and demand for more more water and expect Lake Mead ever to refill to the point where it's going to meet the needs. So at some point, that piper is going to need to be paid. So, um, yeah, how many, and I was amazed, I, you know, I wonder how many, how many people are actually reliant upon water from Lake Mead? 25 million. 25 million. That is um, eight times the population of Iowa, <laughs> dependent upon one lake, fed primarily by one river for their water. Anyway, you know, um, so I hope the people in the upper, upper Midwest who listen to this program are enjoying 
spring. Uh, yeah, it's February 5th, and I'm calling it spring. Actually, I started calling it spring about a week and a half ago. We had uh, a little dusting of snow in November here in Des Moines. We had zero inches of snow. Not even a, not, We had zero flakes of snow in December. First week of January, toward the end of that first week, it hit. The polar vortex um, was busted up by the, the incredibly warm temperatures in the Arctic. All that stuff got pushed down here, along with lows that went down to negative 17 in Des Moines and dropped about, what, 27, 28 inches of snow on us altogether through four storms. So what I like to call real winter, because that is, you know, we used to have, winter used to be, the ground would freeze sometime in maybe November, definitely December, and it would stay frozen, deeply frozen, until March. And I, you know, I was digging in the soil in early January. And then, of course, our three weeks of real winter hit. But now, what, three to four days ago, February 1st, I went out and I thrust a spade into our garden. And no problem. There's no frost in it, which has been great. It's allowed me to do composting. Uh, it's allowed me to, you know, re, re, you know repair some, some garden beds. You know, but it's not good. This is not good. And here's one reason it's not good. And that is if fruit trees get the cue that, hey, it's warmed up, guys. It's time to put out some buds and flowers. If they get that cue, and they probably will the way things are going, it's inevitable there will be a really hard, nasty freeze in late March, early April, mid-April. And it could easily kill off all those blossoms and decimate the fruit crop for 2024. That is a very real possibility. And so, um, you know, and again, to the folks who, I, I know it's a, it's a shrinking audience, but I want to respectfully, uh, you know, recognize that there are climate deniers out there listening to this program. But, you know, with one major historic record after another, I mean, right now, you know, December in the upper Midwest was the warmest on record. And... <laughs> And, and again, this is following one record after another. And, and a lot of times the records are oscillating between excessive heat, extreme cold, excessive drought, excessive rain. And this is all part of what the climate models predict. So, you know, I, I mean, we, we, have to, we, have, we have to start taking this seriously. And I guess I should be glad, bringing me to my third story, I should be somewhat glad that... Um, there are some scientists taking this seriously when it comes to preventing the, uh, the uh, Thwaites Glacier from melting. Now, Thwaites is huge. If it, uh, if it melts, it's going to be sea level rise off the charts. Now, I, I, you know, I, The Guardian is one of my favorite mainstream papers. <laughs> but uh, sometimes, I have a, I, sometimes I have a hard time with their angle. They seem to have bought this idea that it's possible to construct a 62-mile-long, quote, curtain, being called a curtain, anchored to the seabed in front of the Thwaites Glacier that would prevent it from melting. You know, the idea, I guess, is that this would, the, 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 uh, the barrier would partially restrict the inflow of relatively warm water uh, that kind of eats away at the, the base of the uh, glacier. I have a real hard time seeing how that works, and I guess... I'm reading this article thinking, okay, so somewhere in here, somebody's going to say, hey, you know, this isn't really that good of an idea. And no, there's, there's no objective opposition to 
this idea of building a 62-mile-long curtain to prevent a glacier from melting into the sea. And this um, reminds me, and I, you know, I like Andrew Yang a lot, but I was embarrassed when my, my, Kathy and I went to one of his events back in 2019 uh, at a coffee shop here in the little town of Johnston and um, questioned him about climate change. And he said it is the, it is the number one problem but we can't talk about it yet. We can't talk about it compellingly because people are more concerned about basic things like how they're going to pay for rent. And um, I think his line was, so the penguins are going to have to get in line, which um, we had a lot of fun with that idea. But what really bothered me <laughs> was Yang's recognition that, yes, this is, the, this is the, the biggest challenge we face. And one of his responses was, well, we need to start doing things like packing dirt around glaciers. Okay, probably the only thing less sensible to me than putting a curtain in front of a glacier is packing dirt around it. Anyway, you know, the bottom line is we can't tech our way out of this problem. It is our obsession with technology in part and our, our flagrant use of resources like they're, they're all renewable. This is, what, this, is what, this is what's got us into the problem. We're not going to get out of this problem by some high-tech solution. Anyway, I, you know, I, I'm reminded of the movie Don't Look Up. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the rich guy wanted to blow up the asteroid so he could harvest its metals, and that didn't go real well. Anyway, I, that was just a movie. This is not. This is a real proposal. Build a curtain around the Thwaites Glacier. It ain't going to work. Hey, one more thing I want to talk about coming back to the home frontier is um, uh, Des Moines, like many cities, is, quote, blessed, in quotes, uh, with lots of surface parking. In fact, Des Moines has a lot more surface parking than, say, Chicago, which has what? Chicago is what? I think 4% of downtown Chicago is surface parking. Des Moines, 26%. That's over a fourth of the downtown real estate taken up with parking for cars that are used, what, eight hours a day? So I'm glad to see officials talking about this being a problem. That's good. But what they all seem to want to talk about is building housing and commercial development there. And that's Okay for some of it, but this is a huge opportunity to actually begin to create green space, um, parks that can be great places for kids to play, people just to hang out, and also great places for a, an orchard to provide fruit and other food. Some of these lots could be, um, could be community gardens, uh, garden beds. Some could be uh, uh, greenhouses. There's so many possibilities beyond just filling all that 26% of the real estate uh, with commercial and housing development. Anyway, so hey, that's a bit of my uh, my my uh, take on the uh, situation of uh, climate change. Back in a minute, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to have our February Garden Q and A. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. 
Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Uh, these days, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, helpless, even hopeless. Wherever you live in Iowa, Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay sliding scale basis. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Hey, Kathy, welcome to the program. And it being the first uh, week of the month, it's time for our monthly garden Q&A session. Yep, it's February, the month of love, and we love answering questions that people post on also social media. Also forums. Black History Month. <laughs> it is, it is. Thank, thank you. It's, uh, that's a good cover. Also the shortest month of the year. It is the shortest <laughs> month. So some of the questions in no particular order that we're seeing on social media that... Uh, that we we felt were pertinent right now. Uh, somebody's asking, are there any composters in this group? Well, yeah, yeah, a lot of composters in the garden groups. Can I add flowers from a florist <clears throat> to my compost, or are they treated with something that will damage the microbiome? Boy, I do not know the answer to that because I never buy flowers. Sorry, Kathy. <laughs> you have you have a couple of times, right. a couple of times. I, that's that was true. Lovely. I have, I have and uh, <laughs> almost never buy flowers. I, I would say first ask your florist. Mm. Uh, and if you know how many flowers are, are, do you get, do, or do you get tons of flowers from florists? Maybe people do. So um, you know, ask the florist. But I probably don't think it's I don't think it's worth the risk. Also, in in addition to chemicals, there might be dyes and yeah. things that you just yeah. you don't want getting into your food. Yeah, I see a question, too, about uh, tips of, about rotating plants. Uh, well, this, this person says, my dad only has one two-by-six-foot raised bed. He grows peppers and tomatoes. Is rotating going to do anything? He currently just amends the soil every season with new compost. That's a, that's hard. That's a, that's not a you know not real a fortunate lot, situation. Not a lot to work with, is it? Even if they'd swapped the the peppers and tomatoes year over year, they both can deplete a lot of nitrogen, and the tomatoes, yeah. of course, can bring a lot of blight and keep adding. I would suggest that you know broaden it a little bit. Yeah, maybe maybe try to find a way to like beans. <laughs> yes. Or peas or something else. Right. You know? Every every other year, or even every three years. Plant something different so you yeah. can regenerate that soil. Uh, that would be that would be very helpful yeah. because your soil will wear out eventually. So not a good situation. Someone's asking uh, if anyone has grown carrots, radishes, beets, or lettuce in pots or in an egress window well. They say there's is a south facing uh, window well and has plastic cover maintaining 40 degrees. And yes, we grow a lot of things in pots. Yeah, window. I Window we wells, that, that'd be nice. Uh, we don't have a south window. But, no, um, no, we don't. Uh, but that, but the, that wouldn't that take away the purpose of the window well if you have to escape from your basement? 
Oh. I'm, not, I'm not really sure how that would work. I don't know either, yeah. But the, um, yeah, you can, you, we've, we've had some very successful plants grown in pots. I mean, mm-hmm. one, one thing, one comes to mind was a hot Thai pepper. Mm-hmm. That, that's probably, that was our best hot Thai pepper ever. We had like 150 fruits from that one plant. Whatever you're growing in those pots, make sure that pot is deep enough for the root size that you're going to accommodate. A hot pepper is going to have a deeper root. Yeah. Uh, tomato is going to have a much deeper root. So um, make sure you've got a nice deep pot for that. But if you've got you know a few shallower pots, you can still do, yes, uh, radishes aren't very, very long. Um, lettuces, uh, you know, beets, maybe you, you want to space them accordingly so they can get their foliage and develop a nice a nice root for you. Here's an interesting question. Any suggestions for exercises and stretches to start now so I'm ready to go with work outside <clears throat> in a few months? I'm not in bad shape, but I always feel feel it the first few weeks in the dirt. <laughs> I really liked that question. And, and they address it to their, quote, older gardening friends. Oh, yeah, and why yeah. not to everybody? Um, especially if you have had to be more sedentary through the winter, can't get out for walks and things. I, I mean, to me, I do watch out for that because I tend to be clumsy and fall a lot. <laughs> so, and overstretching, I've put out my back and things. So I do find that yoga helps me maintain year round, year round. It helps me maintain strength, uh, in my back, my, my limbs, and then also with balance and flexibility. And considering the fact that Doing garden work last year, I stepped in and fell in a rabbit hole, tearing a hamstring. <laughs> Thought about changing your name to Alice. <laughs> it makes me think that if I weren't trying to stay healthy, it could have been a much worse fall. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, just a, a discussion. This wasn't a question, but somebody had a comment, so we can just discuss. While we are dreaming of spring in our next garden, buying and starting seeds, don't forget to dig into our pantries and freezers, planning meals, and, quote, shopping from our last season's bounty. Bravo. Bravo, yeah. Because it's easy to do that. You, you get excited in, during the season. You you preserve some food in your freezer or cans, and then you forget about it. That's right. They sit on a shelf for years. or. And we don't freezer. forget about stuff, but we find that we have so much stuff, it's hard to use it all. And that is uh, one way that people can monitor and plan for the following year's planting. And I just discussed this at a presentation uh, that we presented as Birds and Bees Urban Farm at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Gardens. Some, you know, we were asking about how to extend the season of salad greens and, or how to get the most out of your garden. And so um, making sure you keep track of what you're actually consuming is a big part of using mm. your space wisely. Yeah. You might have an excess <clears throat> of something and you, you could have had more variety in your diet if you'd planted some other For stuff. For example, we uh, historically have planted two rows of okra. Mm-hmm. And with eight bags of frozen okra still in the freezer, Oops. we're gonna sw- we're gonna we're gonna cut it back to just one bag, one row of okra, and make other use of that other space. <laughs> That'd be told maybe of eight or ten plants. That's plenty. <laughs> That's it plenty is plenty for, for us. Plenty yeah, for and they're us. so prolific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, all right, hey Kathy. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for the conversation today, mm-hmm. folks. Uh, thanks to our guests uh, Claire Selsey and Pat Lamarche. Also, thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman. Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Finally, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our music, 
We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.